How does a person find a relationship with God? If there is a heaven, and there is, if there is hope in the middle of this sinless, sinful world, and there is, then how do we find it? How do we get there? Let's suppose for a moment that after man has come up with all of his ideas from I've paid my dues on earth, I'm better than other people, I'm glad I'm not like other people, God shouldn't judge me in light of how evil this world is and how good I am. Let's just suppose we've come up with all those answers and then mankind has a committee meeting and decides we should be able to dictate to God what he has to do before he can judge us. And so the committee comes back with a report and says, these are the things that we believe God has to do before he has any right to judge us and to condemn us for our sin and to send us to hell. He has to do these things. And so this is what the committee comes up with. First of all, he must be born a Jew, the most despised people on the planet from before the time of Christ to today. He has to be born in obscurity. There need to be questions about his birth and who his father really was. His cause needs to be so radical and so controversial that it stirs up the media, the politicians, the mainstream movers, and the establishment because they don't believe that anybody who is a Jew and who is this obscure could possibly be the way to God. He needs to be betrayed by his closest friends. He needs to be indicted on trumped-up charges and tried before a stacked jury and sentenced by a crooked judge. He needs to experience total abandonment, to be tortured and to die a humiliating death. His name should live on through the ages as a curse word used in times of anger and rage. And then once the committee has read its report to God of what they think God must do before he has a right to sentence man to death, they realize God has already met all of those requirements in his son, Jesus Christ. Every one of those things were characteristics. God has already served his sentence through his son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I would not have to serve the sentence that we should serve. And so I want you to look quickly this morning at three things. First of all, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, this is the setting of the farewell address of Jesus. He has ended his public ministry. He is now focusing on teaching his disciples. They're in an upper room, and they're having the Lord's Supper, the, observing the Passover, which will become for us the Lord's Supper. And they are discussing his farewell 53 times in these chapters, chapter 14 through 17. He uses the name Father. Now, sometimes the name Father is a bad word in our society. We have absentee dads. We have neglectful dads. We have abusive dads. But when you hear the Word of God use the word Father, think of the best possible image that you can think of. When God calls himself a Father, 
He is a loving Father. He is a kind Father. He is a gracious Father. He is a forgiving Father. He is a disciplinary Father, but He never does it out of anger. He does it out of His love. And so Jesus identifies Himself with the Father. And throughout this passage, you see words like troubled and grieved. The disciples were troubled and they were grieved. Why? Because Jesus was about to leave them. And, and Thomas says, Lord, where are you going? And how can we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way. So if you're here today and you're confused or grieved or troubled or angry or bitter or upset about something that life has dealt you that you feel is unfair and God couldn't love you or God couldn't be a loving God if you had to go through that, let me just assure you that God is the way out of all of those issues that you're going through in your life. Now we know that man has taken a lot of ways. He's stumbled along the way. He's tried to find himself and and he's come up with a lot of man-centered religions. The difference between religion and Christianity is religion is man trying to get good enough to get to God. Christianity is God coming down because we weren't good enough and saving us from ourselves and from our sin. Man has tried uh, higher consciousness. He's tried nirvana. He's tried meditation. He's tried having a a greater purpose. He's believed that if he lives a good life, he'll get to go to a planet and have a lot of other wives. I don't know how it makes the one wife the guy has happy that he thinks that if I get to heaven, I get a lot of other wives, but some people come up with that plan. Some say that if you die a martyr, you end up on a planet with 70 virgins. There are a lot of different ways that people have come up with. People have tried in worshiping nature or investigating the spirit world, or trying to be religious, or they've tried it through therapy, or escape through drugs and alcohol. The problem is, we are sinners in need of a Savior. And all of those efforts don't get us the approval of God, and the acceptance of God. The greatest effort that we make is religious moralism. We try to be good enough, or moral enough, to say that, that we know God and therefore we will get to heaven. That's one of the dangers of us living in America. We live in a land where we are free to speak, where we have freedom of religion, and we have freedom of worship and freedom of assembly. And sometimes in America, we confuse nationalism with Christianity. We confuse being God and country people with Christianity. We confuse singing God bless America with being a Christian. And can I just tell you from the Word of God that you can love this country and love God, but not love Jesus, who is the only way that you're going to get out of this country and into heaven and see the Father. You're not going to see it any other way. You, you can't be good enough. You can't be moral enough because somebody could be better than you. And someone could have greater morals than you have. Your, your comparison and your standard for getting to God is not what other people are doing. It's the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you look at Him, you realize, I can't do that. I can't live that way. I need somebody to get me to God. And Jesus says, I am the way. Not a way, I am the way. So let me just mention a few things here. First of all, He's the way to God. 
He's the way to God. God in the Old Testament was seen as unapproachable, as a consuming fire, as so holy other that we could not communicate with him. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He gave us a new understanding of God because he was God. Secondly, he's the way to heaven. They used to say in the old days that all roads lead to Rome, but all roads do not lead to heaven. There are people that are taking the roads of Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Mormon and religion and Baptist and Methodist and Catholic and Episcopalian, but all those roads don't lead to heaven. By the way, there are going to be a lot of Baptists that are not going to be in heaven. There are going to be a lot of Catholics that are not going to be in heaven. There are going to be a lot of Methodists. We just think, oh, just people that don't believe like we believe are not going to be in heaven. No, there are going to be people that sat in church and heard the word and tried to be good and tried to know in their head what was true but never received Jesus in their heart that are not going to be in heaven. All roads don't lead to heaven. There's only one way that leads to heaven. Different religions are not taking different roads to get to the same God. As I mentioned in a message in this series earlier on in the year, uh, one of the people that my daughter has gotten to know in Hollywood said, I just believe Buddha and Jesus and everybody else are, are all sitting up there and they're just all saying, y'all try to be good. And she said, that's not the way it works. First of all, Buddha's not in heaven. Joseph Smith is not in heaven. Muhammad is not in heaven. They are not in heaven because Jesus said, I'm the way. There's no other way. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you make Jesus just another prophet, you cannot get to heaven because he didn't say, I'm just one of many prophets. If you say Jesus is just a way, you can't get to heaven because he didn't say, just take any road you want to and ultimately you'll get there. He emphatically said, I'm the way. Matthew 7, 13 says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Acts 4, 12 says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Thirdly, Jesus is the way to peace. He's the way to peace. Do you realize that since 3500 BC, since 3500 BC, studies have said that this world has only known peace for 292 years since 3500 BC. There have been 14,351 wars since 3500 BC. Any president, any leader that says, I can bring you peace is living in a fog because this world is at war because man is not at peace. Man is not at peace with himself and he's not at peace with God. And so when you're not at peace with yourself and when you're not at peace with God, you will be war at war with your neighbor, with your friends, with your family, and ultimately with God and maybe with other nations. The bigger problem is not that we lack world peace. The bigger problem is we lack individual peace. America leads the world in teenage suicide. We have maxed out rehab units. We're addicted to tranquilizers and herbal remedies and self-improvement books. We're uptight. Augustine was right when he said, The heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. 
Number four, Jesus is our way to joy. He's our way to joy. We, we've tried to find uh, peace in so many things. We've tried to find it in the newest app and the newest update and the newest gimmick and the newest piece of equipment or the newest boat or, or house or, you know. Listen, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Yesterday, I opened the back of my SUV and my two labs jumped in the back of it. They were happy. They were going to their cousin Penny's house to play in the backyard and have a spend the night party. <laughs> On one side is a little chihuahua that doesn't know how to do anything but yap. On the other side is a dog that must weigh 475 pounds that just hangs over the fence and looks down there. They were happy. Dogs were wagging their tails. <laughs> they were happy. I get that way with new car smell. <laughs> my wife gets that way when she goes to the mall. My, I, I, have all, I have all women in my life. That, their spiritual gift is shopping. <laughs> my spiritual gift is paying for it. Uh, uh, you know, you get something new and, you, and you're happy. You, th you think, oh, this makes me happy. And, and then the new car smell goes away and it, you're not happy anymore because it doesn't smell like a new car. And you go to the car wash and say, new car smell. And you go, no, that's not it. I'm going to have to buy me a new one. You see, we think happiness is in what we get. Happiness is tied to you feeling like you and your world are in sync. Joy is tied to knowing that you are in a right relationship with God. Amen. And it's not tied to circumstances. It's not tied to events. Uh, I, I was at the Masters for two days this week, and, and I saw happy people when they made putts, and I saw them get real unhappy when they lipped one out and didn't make a putt. Somebody's going to be really happy at the end of this day because they're going to be declared the winner of the 2012 Masters, but there are going to be another 63 people that are on that course today that are not going to be happy because they didn't win. And then they'll hope they win the next time and hope they win the next time and hope because happiness is fleeting. It doesn't last. It's an emotion. Joy is something that wells up inside of us. Happiness depends on what hap what's happening. Joy depends on the fact that I know that I have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's the truth. Christianity is an exclusive faith. Jesus said, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except, that's an exclusivity statement, except through me. Jesus revealed himself in his words and in his works. He said, if you don't believe what I say, look at what I've done. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, let me just kind of give you a quick picture here. There are 270 ramification verses in the Old Testament related to the coming of Messiah. There are 60 specific major messianic prophecies. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus fulfilled all of those in one time, in one place, in one person, Jesus Christ. Now understand that those prophecies were written over the course of a thousand years, not including the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Now, statistically, for one person, one person, to fulfill 48 of those prophecies, and there are 60, and 270 ramifications of this, are, these are signs that he will be the Messiah. For one person to fulfill 48 of those would be one in 
one and add 157 zeros after it. I can't even pronounce the word that that is. But if you think, well, the chances are one in a million, what are the odds of winning the lottery? The odds on the lottery two weeks ago were like one in 435 million. So, well, that's pretty big odds, one in 435 million. That's, that's more than the entire population of the United States. Now, just think of the odds of one person fulfilling 48, not even all of the prophecies, just 48 of the 60. One and add 157 zeros to the end of it and Jesus fulfilled every one of them every one of them that's why it is impossible for there to be a Messiah that is yet to come that's why it's impossible for there to be any other way and any other truth because no man could orchestrate over a period of thousands of years of prophecies orchestrate and manipulate the data and the information and the revelation into one person and say this is the fulfillment of it without finding a flaw somewhere and in 2,000 years since the coming of Christ no one has been able to say but he didn't fulfill that one because when you study the scriptures it's emphatic yep Jesus did that Jesus said that Jesus revealed that Jesus did the things that Messiah would do and so we have a living word, Jesus Christ. We have a written word, the scriptures that tell us that he is the truth. Now, in every area of life, there's a standard. In golf, it's par, 71 or 72, depending on the course you play, 35 if it's putt-putt. Some of you are more familiar with that. In bowling, it's 300. In baseball, it's a no-hitter. God said when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, here's the standard. Guess what? You may be able to shoot par. You may be able to bowl 300. You may be able to pitch a no-hitter, but you can never live up to the demands of God for the forgiveness of sin, but one did. His name was Jesus Christ. And if I want to be saved, if I want to have a relationship with God, if I want to have a home in heaven, if I want forgiveness of sin, then I come to God's standard, Jesus Christ, and I look to him as the one who can meet the standard, and I can't, but I look to him to meet it for me. And then he is the life. He is the life. Longfellow said, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Paul said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Merrill Tenney said, Jesus is the ultimate foundation for a satisfactory philosophy of life. He didn't claim to merely know the way, the truth, and the life as a formula that he could impart to the ignorant, but he actually claimed to be the answer to human problems. Jesus' solution is not a recipe it's a relationship with him. Can I tell you what Jesus is? <laughs> Jesus is the death killer and the life giver. He took away the sting of death. Death is the thing that we fear more than anything else. We are afraid to talk about it. We don't make wills. We never go visit a funeral home because we're afraid to deal with the reality of death. Jesus stole the keys to death and hell and the grave. He's the life. He's life for you. I'm not just talking about breath. I'm talking about life. Abundant life. Fulfilled life for you.
Let me just tell you my story. I was born in 1952. My birth certificate was altered. My parents always said that my birth was on December 25th, but we're pretty sure it was December 23rd. My birth mother is still alive. I was not told I was adopted until I was 39 years of age. Even as late as these last 10 days, we've had some open doors that have closed uh, trying to find out who my birth mother is and information about her. We know that she's alive. We know that she was in the Miss Mississippi pageant. We know that she's married and she has children and that she has never told her family that I even exist. She knows that I exist. We have someone that has communicated with her, but she doesn't know my name and she doesn't know what I do. But one day, God accepted me into a family. In December of 1952, a family, Grover and Winnie Cat, adopted me and brought me into their home. They were Christians. They were not active and involved in the church at the time. They had been raised in the church. Uh, my dad's father was a volunteer minister of music for 32 years in his church and did a lot of things, a lot of good things. He knew the Lord and he loved the Lord. But my dad was not a strong Christian leader. In fact, I can remember from the time I was about five or six years old that my dad would say, this is what he would say to me every Sunday morning when he'd wake me up. He'd say, son, he said, if you're ready to join the church today, I'll go down with you. My mom and dad did not join the church when they moved to the town that they lived in from 1948 until the day they died in the 1990s. They didn't join the church. They were waiting for me to get to the point where I would join the church. If you're ready to go down, I'll go with you. And so my dad, every morning, year after year after year, when I was about nine years old, I was in Bible school because my parents took me to Bible school. They took me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. I mean, we went there. I went to RAs. I went on the camp outs. I got chased by a wild boar hog one day and ran into the water screaming for Jesus when I didn't know him. <laughs> every Sunday, my dad said, if you're ready to go, I'll go with you. And I kept hearing that and hearing that. One day in Bible school, Mike Green was sitting there. Mike Green lived one block over from me. We'd play Army and uh, fight, and I'd always try to win because my yard was bigger than his, so if it's my yard, I get to win. And so Mike Green said to me, he said, I'm going to go down and get saved this morning. And I thought, well, I am too. I said, Mike Green's not going to beat me at anything. I, I was a high A, high D person when I was nine years old. Mike Green's not going to beat me. I'm going to beat him down. So I sat at the end of the row so I could get out before Mike Green got out so he couldn't crawl over me. So I went down, and I walked down, and I shook the preacher's hand, and I said, I came to be saved. Nobody ever talked to me. Nobody ever prayed with me. Nobody asked me, are you convicted of sin? Do you know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Nobody said to me, do you realize that it's not what you do, it's what God's done for you? Nobody ever said to me, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Nobody ever said to me, there's none righteous, none, no, not one. It, that Nobody ever told me that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you shall be saved. I just was going to beat Mike Green. So I went up, I got baptized, nobody ever talked to me. They just said, glad you're here. And they just, you know, I got a change of clothes, went to baptistry and got baptized. And that Sunday, my dad joined the church. 
because he came with me when I was ready to join the church. Most of my growing up, I never heard my parents pray. My dad hardly ever prayed over the meals, although he was at church. He read his Bible every night. What I'm telling you is my dad didn't lead. My dad did not lead. He waited for me to lead. And there's some dads in this room, and you've got some four- and five-year-old kids, and you may have some 30-year-old kids, and they're still waiting on you to lead. They're still waiting on you to stand up and be the man that God called you to be to lead your home. They're still waiting on you to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to show my family what that looks like. They're still waiting on that. When I was in high school, I started hanging out with the wrong group. Spent time with the wrong people, dated the wrong girls. Was in youth choir. Go sit in my youth minister's office and talk to him. I love my youth minister. He's a great guy. First guy I ever knew in the ministry that didn't wear a suit and a tie. I mean, it just was like, this guy's the coolest guy in the world. He, he wears like open collar shirts. I thought that, I asked him one day, I said, how come you don't wear one of those collars with the little white strip and stuff? You know, how, how come you don't do that? He said, to coach softball? But one day after I was out of high school, I was on a youth trip to the beach and I got saved. I realized for the first time in my life that I had made a decision. I'd been in church. I knew the answers. I knew how to pray when my Sunday school teacher called on me. I remember in the 10th grade, Dr. Smith, who was a dentist, who had a dentist office right around the corner from my dad's drugstore, Dr. Smith said, Michael, I want you to pray for us. And it was, I'll never forget it. The first time I ever got called on to pray in 10th grade Sunday school, it was the day that the Jets were playing Baltimore in the Super Bowl. Super Bowl three, And all I remember praying, I can tell you to this day what I prayed that day, Lord Jesus, please let the Jets win the Super Bowl. Aren't you glad I'm the pastor of this church? But I want to tell you something. That day as a teenager, when I realized that what I needed was a Savior, when I realized that my religion wasn't good enough, that my parents raising me in a Christian home wasn't good enough, that my dad reading the Bible wasn't good enough, that me having a Bible and going to Sunday school wasn't good enough, that all my righteousness was like a dirty rag in the eyes of God. When I realized that what I needed was a relationship with Jesus, Christ came into my heart and saved me there are people in this room today that have been saved from all kinds of things there are people that have come out of broken homes and terrible home situations that have been delivered and they're incredible parents today there are people that have survived some very nasty and ugly divorces and out of their desperation have come to God and they are new people in Christ today there are people in this room that have been addicted to drugs and alcohol that have been set free by Jesus Christ and taken away the desire that they had for things to try to fill an empty void in their life that cannot fill that empty void. It can only temporarily dull the pain that have been set free by Jesus Christ today. There are people young and there are people old. There are people in this church that have been saved in their 60s. And there are people in this church that have been saved when they were six. There's no certain age. It's when God begins to speak to you 
and you realize I need Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. I need to trust him personally. I need to receive him into my heart. You see, you and I don't get saved when we feel like it. We save when God, we get saved when God speaks to our heart and we begin to understand I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I'm on a path, but I don't know the way. I, I, I know some truth, but I don't know the truth. I, I've got a life, but I don't have the life. And I need Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life to me. Let's just say that there is no heaven. I want to tell you something. I'd give my life to Jesus if there was no heaven because he's made this life better than any life could have ever been. Now, does being saved deliver you from problems and from adversity? No. Does it deliver you from disappointment and heartache? No. Does it deliver you from grief and from trouble? No. Does it deliver you from pain and from obstacles? No. But I tell you what it does. It gives you God inside of you to walk you through those times that when you feel like giving up, you go back and remember whatever you've gone through, Christ went through more because he loved you enough to give his life for you. Amen.